Hello, and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss new ideas that can shape a sustainable food system, from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert DeGraff, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. On behalf of the Forum, I would like to warmly invite you to the second live event which will take place on October 26 at 3pm Central European time, with two full panels discussing how to reward sustainability in the food system, as well as a keynote address by FFA Chairman Janis Potoshnik, it promises to be a stimulating afternoon. Please go to forumforagriculture.com and get your free ticket. We hope to see you there, and now, on with the podcast. Welcome back to Food Systems. Today we're joined by Dr. John Gilliland, Director of Agriculture and Sustainability at Devonish Nutrition. He's also the Chairman of the Northern Ireland Agricultural Land Management Strategy Expert Working Group, as well as an active farmer, former President of the Ulster Farmers Union, and has held a variety of functions in the world of food systems. And today we're going to talk about sustainable livestock management and a bit about soil John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I wanted to start, I think it's fair to say that in the last few years, livestock and its effects on the environment, the climate and human health has certainly risen up the policy agenda. As you see, is the livestock sector as it currently stands sustainable from an environmental or a climate perspective? Well, I think we need to be very careful in answering that question that we don't tar all systems with the same brush. There is a vast range of systems within the European Union and beyond the European Union on livestock production. Um, Certainly, at its extreme, it is causing a huge input, uh, a huge uh, footprint. But at the other end, making prior ruminant agriculture uh, where it is eating pasture land and defecating, recycling nutrients to soils and creating ecosystem services, we need to be very careful not to make a prior of it. I think the trick going forward is how we get the right balance. I think most people would broadly agree with that. However, what we're currently seeing in Europe is that part of the problem is not so much that ruminants are on grassland, but that ruminant intensity seems to be a a problem. Uh, We have a lot of cows on on relatively small patches of land. I'm thinking, for example, of Ireland or or the Netherlands, uh, certain regions of France and Italy. Is livestock intensity the problem? Well... I, I, livestock intensity is a problem, but actually, I think a far greater problem is we haven't looked at the landscape around those animals. And for us, before we castigate and, and under the uh, uh, the nitrates uh, directive, you know, uh, intensity of livestock are, are, are capped. The issue is at the moment: can we find a way of uh, efficiently producing? nutritious food in a way that's environmentally benign. And to do that, it was one of the reasons why Devonish in 2013 bought a block of land and said, we are going to go and have a go at it ourselves. Because our focus has been, up until to date, has been primarily on the animal and not on the soils or the hedges, the trees, the water, the diversity around that. And what we're doing at the moment is we're on a journey to deliver carbon neutral beef and lamb by 2025 in a way that drives profitability, 
reduces greenhouse gas emissions, but also delivers the other public goods like improving water quality, carbon sequestration, creating more biodiversity. And for us, sustainable agriculture, and particularly sustainable ruminant agriculture, is about getting that right balance. That's it. I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Together with Devonish, you are currently running a lot of experimental work in Douth in County Mead. What conclusions have you learned from your work there that could be broadly applicable to livestock and ruminant management in, in across Europe? There are two or three key messages. One is uh, actually instilling a little bit of discipline in creating what we call baselines. So go and actually see what is our impact? What's our footprint? What are the management decisions we now need to make? And when we make them, what impact are we having on the baseline? Is it positive? Is it negative? But at least what that does is brings transparency in our journey. One of the difficulties about the public debate at the moment is we don't have a lot of data about ruminant landscapes. And so we wanted to focus on the landscape and we want to see how the two could coexist. And uh, that has really been our, our success to date. Using um, smart digital technologies, using aerial LIDAR surveys, using GPS soil sampling and analysis has really been able to give us digital baselines, accurate baselines, at an individual farm business level that is empowering us with you know, really good knowledge, allowing us to make better quality decisions about the future of both the livestock production and the public goods that we also deliver at the same time. I think the the story of baselines to me sounds very important, and I've watched some of the your your presentations, which which are very impressive about the work you're you're doing on this farm. But it does seem to me it strikes me as something very localized, and of course you, you have the benefit of working for a, a corporation with with resources, and you have, as you say, collaborations with with universities and research institutes. Not all farmers have the luxury of having that level of scientific knowledge. Is it reasonable to expect them to create baselines without this level of scientific support? What we need as a society is we need to empower individual farmers because they're the decision makers. They're the people who actually need to come on this journey with us. And if you can't give them better quality information that allows them to make better quality decisions, if you keep doing the same, why will you get a different answer? So for us, um, if we're now saying in a reformed common agricultural policy, public money for public goods or the equivalent of that, we need to find a way of actually rewarding people on positive change and not just on process. To do that, you are going to have to put in some mechanisms to measure change so that taxpayers re, re, you know, can see that they're getting value for money. If we, as an industry, are going to continue to expect public taxpayers to support our industry, we have to deliver our side of the bargain. We are going to have to change, but we need to give transparency and visibility to that change. Where we have done this, and we've been working in Douth, but in our uh, sustainable land management strategy, we've now rolled this out over three river catchments in Ireland. We've had 80% farmer engagement. We've done aerial LIDAR surveys. We've done precision soil sampling analysis. And we've done one-to-one -one training with 
soil runoff and phosphate runoff risk maps. So really empowered them. And two years later, we had a team of social scientists in, and we have seen 80% of the farmers that came on the journey with us have now significantly changed their behavior. And we believe the key is empowering people with personal knowledge about their business. You know, much that we want catchment solutions. I, as a land manager, don't manage my neighbor's property. I do manage my property. So actually what I want is really detailed information about my own property. And by going on this journey about measuring and managing, it at one stage appears onerous. The quality of the information that you get back has really allowed us to make far better decisions. For example, for us, key in profitability in rumen production is herbage utilization per hectare per year. And we have doubled that in six years. As a consequence... Sorry, just for our listeners who may not be quite as uh, up-to-date with their uh, ruminant scientific knowledge, what is does that term mean? So basically, um, all farms will produce crops. You know, we, our crop is grass or it's herbage, it's multi-species swords. And uh, many people just measure yield of, of grass, Okay. But actually, what we need to be looking at, the metric is not about yield, but it's actually about the utilization of that grass or multi-species sword into sellable meat or milk. And that is a sign of an indicator of efficiency, but it also is an indicator of efficient use of nutrient because we are very keen on balance sheets. We're one of the first farms in Europe to have a carbon balance sheet. You know, looking at phosphate balance sheets, looking at nitrogen balance sheets. So one of the key things is the utilization of nutrient. The utilization of carbon is fundamental, and this allows us to do it. And it gives us um, really very good information at our own farm business level that allows us to make far better decisions. And we are, we are very key. If we, if we want to get behavioral change, we need to empower people with precise data about their own land, not about their neighbors. I think that's certainly very true. On the question of innovation, people have identified various areas where, where livestock management could, could be improved and it could become more sustainable. Uh, feed being one, genetics and breeding another, stables, housing, well, digital tools. Which of these areas do you think holds the most immediate promise? Where, where would Devonish put its, its research money, if asked? The one thing, we've invested our money in areas where we feel there are knowledge gaps. And uh, there are a lot of organizations driving genetics and really good organizations too. And we've stepped aside and let them get on with it. The two areas that we have focused on is one is the nutrition that goes into the animal. And the second, and, and around that, that is both bought-in feed, but actually homegrown feed. And, you know, most farmers, the majority of what goes into an animal, certainly in ruminant agriculture, is home grazed or home saved forage. And so our purchase of the lands of Douth in 2013 was about actually looking at that. What could we do better getting our own house in order? And that really started our shift to look away, to move beyond a monoculture of ryegrass, to look at engaging with legumes and herbs within that sward, to look at the benefits of our soil. What we found very quickly is that over the last 35, 40 years, livestock farmers have focused on the animal and forgotten about soils. 
And when we did our baselines, we found the farm that we bought, our soil fertility was awful. And when we did our carbon baseline, we found our carbon was awful. And people forgot that actually the level of carbon in soil is directly related to the, the biological health of that soil. And because our pH was low, we were respiring carbon, not sequestering carbon. So we have focus. We believe if you get the soil health right, the soil fertility right, you get the nutritious quality of the grass right. But by bringing diversity into that sward, by bringing legumes in, by bringing herbs in, you give uh, a cow a far better balanced diet. We talk about humans about having a balanced, diverse diet, not extremism. Cows are no different. They need a balanced, diverse diet. And uh, we believe our experience at Douth has achieved that. The point of getting our own house in order is an interesting one. One of the, I would say, controversial areas at the moment uh, regarding livestock production in, in Europe is our quite extensive dependence on foreign sources of animal protein. The most famous one, certainly at the moment, being soy from South America and its broader impact on the Amazon rainforest and, and other other areas. To counter this, the EU has set up its own protein strategy. What do you make of these moves? Is Europe, can we be credibly on a path to protein independence? Well, I think we need to embrace the agenda, and that is um, we cannot further accelerate. We need to stop and we do need to stop the deforestation that's going on, not only in South America, but other parts of the world. So for us as a company, we've been focusing on two issues. And not only driven by greenhouse gases, also driven by ammonia emissions. Uh, ammonia emissions are directly related to the amount of crude protein you feed. So if you can reduce crude protein in the diet, you reduce ammonia emissions and therefore nitrogen deposition on priority habitats. So there are many reasons why we need to tackle this. We've tackled in two ways. One is we've managed to create uh, new diets that have substantially lower crude protein levels in it. But we also then, the grazing animal, we've switched from looking at just straight ryegrass. By building in uh, uh, sward diversities um, with particularly legumes, we've, we've greatly reduced the need of, of, of quantity of crude protein that we need in, in a diet. And I um, strongly believe that we need to put our own house in order. Europe is sadly not blessed with many uh, indigenous combinable protein crops. So we have to look at the other tools in the toolbox. And as I say, two, the two things we're looking at, one is reducing the overall crude protein needed in the animal. And the second one is, can we actually grow uh, plants that we know grow well, like legumes, and put it into our swords? And not only reduce the soya problem, but actually displace nitrogen. On our farm, we've dropped our nitrogen utilization, our multi-species swords, from 170 kilos per hectare per year to 70 kilos per hectare per year. And we believe probably we will be able to take that further. And that's a huge win on water quality, on nitrous oxide emissions, but also profitability. I wanted to pick up on the tools in the toolbox. One of the things that, that many people are talking about at the moment is, and this is more on the consumer side of things, is to say, well, one of the tools we have, that's certainly now in more and more supermarkets, are meat alternatives, things like Impossible Burger. And as we've seen in the last few years, the, the, the trials for lab-grown steaks essentially are in a very advanced stage and will probably end up in a supermarket in the next 
decade or two, I would certainly say. What is your view of, of that market? Will that replace at least some of the livestock and ruminants that we currently produce? Well, the scale of the, the global market in this space, um, will it will always allow new entrants to come in. Our experience with the product we're producing, which is a high-quality, highly nutritious product, the people who are consuming our product at the moment are very discerning and want to know the provenance. They want to know the authenticity of the product. And what is very clear, if we've learned anything from the likes of COVID, is actually balanced nutrition delivers good human health, resilience in, in human health. Um, the issue for us is making sure we give transparency on our provenance. But also, you know, I, I, I query on, on the, the two developments you mentioned. One is, can they do it in a way that doesn't create ultra-processed food? Because ultra-processed food, all the indicators are that that is not sympathetic with a good, balanced, and healthy diet. Uh, second of all is the amount of salt. Can they do it without using excessive salt? And the third one, I have yet to see a lab being able to replace the role of a ruminant that takes really low-cost, poor-quality roughage and turns it into highly nutritious meat and milk. And I will be delighted the day that the lab can do it as efficiently as a ruminant. And uh, our job is to put our own house in order. Those guys will skirt around, it's up to them, but our job is to get our house in order. We can deliver, and we will as a company, deliver carbon-neutral beef and lamb by 2025. I think the point about uh, provenance and authenticity of meat that's being produced is also an important one. Certainly, we see that more and more, the, the focus on short supply chains, especially, uh, as you mentioned, during corona times. However, what we do also see on the flip side of that is that provenance and authenticity do tend to come with a nice price tag attached to it. There is also just an argument that, that says meat should just be more expensive because of the external costs that it produces to air, to water, to, to the climate. Should meat be more expensive? Um, what I always find, the price of meat is determined by the marketplace and not by politicians. And uh, what I find with politicians, politicians have not been very great in getting behavioral change. I think the key thing we need to, to, to drive is we need to get the environmental footprint done of our products. We produce nutritious products that are good in a balanced diet, not an extreme extreme diets. And our focus will be on that. Um, there is an issue about food poverty, which is a huge issue, and it's a issue for society to pay, you know, to to get their head around. There is also an issue about what are the public goods that society actually do want to pay. And what do they see the market playing? Uh, in the case of carbon, there's every probability that probably the marketplace will pick up the gauntlet on carbon. But when it comes to air quality and it comes to water quality and it comes to biodiversity, those are far more difficult public goods. And so I still foresee that those will be a public good that will come more from the taxpayer rather than, than the marketplace as such. Our job is to get the super tanker turned around. Our job is to do it in a credible, measurable, and verifiable way that we give confidence to both taxpayers and to the marketplace that when they support a farming system like the one was we are developing, 
they are reassured that we actually are honoring what we say we are doing. One more question before we get to the, the last question, the penultimate question, if you will. You mentioned turning the, the super tanker around, the importance of public goods. Do you think that the current reform of the common agricultural policy will do that? Will, will it help turn the tanker around and, and provide the, the level of support for, for public goods that, that you seem to be calling for? The key thing in reform and, you know, getting cap changed is also a super tanker too. Um, it's not the only super tank. There isn't just one super tanker out there, I have to say. Um, the concept for me that I'm very passionate on, you know, where we're asking for public money, it should be public money for public goods. And for the people who change their behavior, they should be rewarded on outputs, not on processes. And so I actually very welcome, I, I welcome very much the direction of travel in CAP discussions, in the New Green Deal, in the Farm to Fork strategy, around actually what we're looking to do is support outputs and creating outputs. Uh, alongside that, we need to bring forward uh, a suite of, of, of metrics that can measure this change so that people are reassured that the public money that's going into this and even the premium price paid for products is it is actually delivering the turning of that tanker and it's visible and it can be seen and uh, we actually leave this world a better place to the next generation. We're coming up to the, the final question, which is the one that we ask of everybody who comes on the podcast is if you could transmit one single idea or one concept that, that would really, to you, make a big difference in creating a more sustainable food system, what would it be? Well, the one thing it wouldn't be is a silver bullet. Because for me, there is no silver bullet. How we are bringing our forward, we have a, a strategy called One Health from Soil Society. It's about solution thinking. We've been very fortunate. We secured a Marie Curie Award from the European Commission. We have five PhD students working on our farm, um, supported by Bangingham University and Research and by University College Dublin. And the beauty about that project is those five PhDs are not working in isolation. They're working towards one thing. And that is how do we optimize nutrition from soil to swords to animals to humans in a way that reduces our environmental footprint. So each one has their own little bit, but they coexist. Their PhD depends on the success of their four cohorts. What you get then are graduates who look at systems thinking. Our current education system up until now is we've got really bright people who are really deep thinkers, but work in silos. They can't look at the system. So for us, we believe the future is through a bit more complexity, but it is a, a, a solutions-based future where there are no silver bullets. It is a cocktail of many innovations packaged in a solution. I think that's a... Great note on which to leave it. Uh, Dr. John Gilliland of Definition Nutrition, thank you once again for coming on the podcast. And um, we very much look forward to seeing you uh, speak live on October 26 at 3 uh, Central European time. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our new episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app as well as on Twitter, at ForumFrag, for updates on this podcast, news, as well as FFA events. 
please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day. Mm-hmm.